Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Two Narrows Podcast. I'm your host, James Enno, joined by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. Rowan, as always, is on the deck. Say hi, Rowan. Hi, Rowan. And this is our first podcast of 2022, um, our first recording of 2022. It'll be a couple of weeks into January when you hear, uh, see and hear this. And this week, we have Dr. Chris Luke, who many from Cork will know Dr. Chris from the Mercy. Um, but for the people that don't know you, Chris, first of all, welcome and happy new year. Thanks, guys. Thanks, James. Thanks, Thank Tim. You very um, much. Thank you very much for inviting me. For the people that don't know you, do you want to kind of bring us back to the start where you were born? What was it like growing up? Um, yeah, well, I'm I'm obviously a, a, a medic and I've been working in emergency departments for the, the bones of 40 years. But I originally were was from South Dublin and I was born at the t- tail end of the 1950s. And basically, I was, uh, you know, the offspring of, of a single mother. Uh, my mother was my father's secretary. It's that kind of old story. But this, the difference was that this was back in, you know, old Catholic Ireland. And uh, there was a great deal of difficulty as a result of all that. Mm-hmm. And I ended up in, a, in an orphanage, St. Philomena's Orphanage in Stillorgan, one of the many well-known orphanages right around the country, particularly in, in, in my part of, of South Dublin. Now, this was one of the places that were, were set up by John Charles McQuay, the famous Archbishop who, along with Devil Era, Dev, was set to basically be the, the, the unspoken ruler of the country back mm-hmm. when Ireland was a deeply Catholic country, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. And so, in fact, St. Philomena's was technically a residential home for unmarried mothers and their children. Uh, although like Besborough. It was a bit like Besborough, as far as I can wear, although there didn't seem to be that many mothers around. Uh, my, 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 no, to be fair, my recollections are extremely uh, yeah, uh, you know, fuzzy mm. because I, I think like most uh, people who've been involved in this kind of thing I, I've suppressed most of the memories mm. so most of the recollection has been filtered through my mother's friends my mother never spoke about the whole situation I was in the orphanage from the age of about six months to the age of about six and a half seven uh, in a nutshell I was uh, spirited away to London I was born in the East End in the, in the London Hospital and brought back to Stadorg and Kilmacud uh, as a as a tiny baby. I was given to a local woman at the age of two weeks, I believe. And I, I think that didn't work out. So as a result, the inevitable, you know, came to pass and I was handed to the the nuns in St. Philomena's. And the 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 quote was that I was put into that orphanage because it was a French order of nuns. 
and uh, the, 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 it was felt that they were less brutal <clears throat> or less harsh than the, the Irish orders. Now, I'm not sure how true that was because mm. certainly when I did a little bit of research later on, St. Philomena's had a pretty ferocious reputation, really? not much different from other places like Bespera or the Magdalen Laundries. Um, certainly the accounts from the survivors that I found in the pa- newspapers or in the annals um, when, I, when I looked it up, you know, a couple of years ago, they were pretty brutal. You know, there was a lot of beatings going on, a lot of people being locked away under cupboards, a lot of people being being ferried from police stations to home and then back to police stations and back to the orphanage and then back to the Magdalene laundries and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, I, I gather it was a pretty grim place. Mm. Having said that, I don't remember being beaten. You know, uh, I have very faint memories of sort of iron bedsteads and thin pillows. And, you know, I remember one young nun with hairy legs sitting on a table is reading a book to kids and me climbing under the table and uh, inspecting her hairy legs. Um, she may have been the, the nun who famously fell in love with me, uh, apparently, according to uh, my kind of surrogate mother, Una Hayes. Um it was because one young nun apparently kind of adopted me. I was a kind of a, I was a, I was a handsome, winsome little boy. And she basically sort of semi adopted me in inverted commas mm. and gave me some sort of maternal care. That's the theory. Yeah. And accordingly, she apparently left the, 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 the order and left the, the, the nunnery when I left actually. And interestingly. Broken hearted. Apparently so. That was the legend. I mean, the, Jeez, the, the, the whole like of my first four or five or six yeah. years is the stuff of legend. But, you know, I don't think that's that unexpected when you think about it. It's because fast. we hear about all these terrible tragedies of people being plucked from their, their mothers. Mm. And of course, I was profoundly affected by those two big movies, Philomena and mm. Spotlight, right, about yeah. the whole trafficking thing. I was really affected by the RTE program at the beginning of last year with all these middle-aged men and women weeping yeah. as they recounted how they had been trafficked or their children had been trafficked in the in, in Ireland in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s mm. to Americans and Australians. Um, so I, I, I think there's, there must have been good stories amidst all that. There must have been kindly people. Mm, of course. Uh, because I'm, I, I'm convinced that 90% of human beings are, in, you know, ultimately kind, yeah. decent and want to do the right thing in Bertha Commons. Yeah. And you were saying um, off camera that your mother was from um, Summerhill. And no, my, my my grandmother. Your grandmother yeah, so yeah, is yeah. from inner city. Yeah. And it's not that your mother wanted to give you up. It was just at that time, if you weren't married, this was the dilemma. Yes. You were no, my mother was my father's secretary. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, from what I can work out, her parents were probably the most ferociously reacting to what happened. Mm. And I think she was kind of ostracized. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I don't really know the facts, but I, I gather her mother w- was absolutely appalled. Her father was appalled. Because um, the shame of it. The shame the of the whole thing in, in, in you know, in, in Renla in, in Dublin and it was where, where they, she grew up. Uh, and my grandmother was a difficult woman anyway, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I often, I say in the book, you know, difficulty makes people difficult. You know, I think that's a very important yeah. idea for, for, uh, for a Samaritan like me, you know, before you leap to to, to judgment, remember where people are coming from. You know, my own grandmother had come from the tenements in Gardner Street in Dublin at the turn of the last century. Her father was a veteran of the Crimea, the the, the Indian Army, uh, Khartoum, and I'm certain he had 
post-traumatic stress disorder and was a kind of a, an over-drinking uh, military mm. vet. And I, I, I believe he tried to throw her down the stairs, that kind of thing in the tenements. Uh, so it was all kicking off. And I'm sure there was terrible poverty. This was the stuff of, of Sean O'Casey yeah. and, you know, the, star, the Plow and the Stars. It, I, I often think that those plays must have described what my my grandmother grew up in because they actually recognised Sean O'Casey. They, my, my mother rep- remembers my, her mother saying, look, there's, there's Mr. O'Casey there. You know, they'd see him in a shop in, in the, in the area. Um, it would so, be like Norfolk Cork people uh, and, and people not from Dublin. If you think of like, um, you know, the Western Road where you mm-hmm. have old houses, you know, maybe three or four stories high. But if you think of those buildings and in each room, there's a separate family with all the kids and they all share that big house. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what the tenements used to be like. The tenements were once upon a time the homes of the aristocracy and the members of Parliament for Dublin and, and the country. They were like the great houses of Knightsbridge and Chelsea. And when the Act of Union of about 1800 came in, all of them decamped to London and all and the houses fell into dereliction and they had kind of rack rent le- uh, landlords. And the, as you say, they used to put whole families into individual rooms, like a room that would have been a, a dressing room or, a, or mm. a, a, a parlour or something. Suddenly became a home for eight, nine, ten people. Was, I mean, it was astounding sort of stuff. Mm. And you see pictures, and I remember actually them from the 60s and 70s in Dublin myself as a boy, York Street, beside the College of Surgeons now. I remember the the, uh, the lines and the, and the laundry hanging out of the windows mm. and the, the barefoot kids wandering around, you know, Moore Street. I mean, there was a, a great number of slums and tenements in Dublin in the 60s and 70s when I grew up. Mm. And all the, the women in the barrows in Moore Street uh, and right down uh, uh, Henry Street, they, they were incredibly poor people. They were the they were the last generation of those slum dwellers. Mm. Uh, so my, my grandmother grew up in, in that kind of context. And I suspect that she never wanted to look back at all that. And that's why she was so difficult. Yeah. How, does it, how does a guy that grew up in, in that kind of situation in, in a, an orphanage go on then to study medicine? Well, we're going to find out now, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> like it, because like, it, it, listening to your backstory, I, I'm sitting here like, and you're a doctor and everything else. and uh, I'm, Because there might be a perception that yeah, see where we come from, consultants and doctors are that all is the That is the beginning kids. of life yeah. for a lot of us yeah. at homes and things like that. And we go on into prisons and drug addiction. But your story is so different, you know? Well, here's the thing, Tim. I believe I was um, uh, the blessed recipient of good luck, good yeah. luck. Uh, like you have to remember that the whole of Irish society was in these orphanages mm. from the very top to the very bottom. Okay. So you had letter fracks. Yeah. These terrible places where boys were brutalized and killed mm. or Bespera and people or tomb. Right. And, and babies ending up in pits and, and yeah. you know. And then on the other end, you had people in the upper middle classes where there was still scandal and shame. And they were put into more, slightly more middle classes mm-hmm. places. So from what I understand and have learned and learned more and more is that, you know, there were lots of children that were put in and out of these orphanages, mm-hmm. inverted commas orphanages, because I don't think that most of the kids in there were orphans. I think most of them were taken from their children, yeah, yeah. from their mothers. They weren't handed up. Like- so they weren't mm-hmm. actually orphans. That's another thing you have to remember. They were often tra- trafficked mm-hmm. to childless couples in America or Australia or Britain. Or even Ireland, yeah. you know, 
There were middle class uh, families in Ireland. I think you got some of these children as orphans, but they weren't orphans. Unlike a lot of the people, kids that you would have been in the orphanage with, you ended up back with your mum. Yeah, because I, my mother was, see, one of the other things, because one of the other lucky things was my mother was 40 when she had me, mm. which was unbelievably unusual. Like nowadays, it's very common for women to have their first child at 35. That's quite normal now. But back then, in, 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 it, people would have been in their late teens, early 20s having their children. So my mother was 20 years older than most mothers, uh, something which I felt throughout my life, actually interesting, because my mother was a kind of an elderly woman, I yeah. thought. I always thought she was very elderly. Yeah. And that was a kind of source of grief to me because all the other mothers seemed to be young and glamorous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, my mother was really experienced and worldly wise. So she'd worked for years. Mm. She was a single working mother. She knew what was going on. So I think, and she had friends and connections. So even though there was a lot of scandal and shame, she had enough friends and support at work. Uh, and she was working in Guinness, mm. you know, and Guinness was at one point, I believe, uh, the biggest employer in Dublin. Or at least it was said, there was legend had it that in around about 1900, that about a quarter of the entire population of Dublin relied on a Dublin income. Well, yeah. That doesn't mean that they were all working for it, but it just meant that if you had a, one member of the family in Guinness, such was the, the the benevolence of Guinness. They were such a great employer that, that three, four, five other people could live off that income. My, uh, grand, my, my uh, grandfather, my grandmother, my dad is from Inchicore. Yeah, which is, yeah, which real is Guinness. Fair. That's Guinness territory. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm, real I'm, Guinness territory. My, my uncle John uh, worked in Guinness for years. Yeah. Ironically, he never drank. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> there you are. You know? He used to swap his alcohol that he'd get he for uh, it. He ice barter, creams barter, with somebody working in HP. Absolutely, yeah. He caught up to me nans, the freezer would be full of magnum doubles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah brilliant. So, Oh. But I, so I have a real soft spot for Guinness because they were a bit like the Quakers in Jacobs and Roundtree. They were really benevolent. And I, 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 my mother once showed me the, the records for the medical officers in Guinness. Mm. And the, apparently the medical officer in Guinness around about 1900 had gone to Bavaria and in Germany or other parts of Germany to check out their hygiene system. Because hygiene in Germany meant everything, healthcare. Because in the late 19, uh, 19th century, 1880, 1890, you know, there was terrible tuberculosis all around the place. Mm. And those who could afford to went to the Swiss Alps or the French Riviera because the clear air, the, 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 the alpine air or the sunshine uh, were set to kill the, the TB bug. And uh, so people went there for the, for the cure. And actually in 2022, it turns out they were right. Uh, you know, because here you were buying ultraviolet machines, yes, mm. and HEPA filters for our COVID. And it turns out that the clean alpine air and the sunshine in France does the job. But anyway, the, the, the Guinness medical officer went off to Germany, to Bavaria or whatever, to study their health system. And he came back and it was he who led, who drove the, the, the development of health systems in Guinness for workers. So that they ended up having the original NHS type system. Mm. They had the best medical service probably in these islands, from cradle to grave for all Guinness families, Guinness employees, right until they were in their pensions. They had the Ivy Athletics Ground. The they IV, had the uh, Ivy the Baths. They had the Crumlin uh, residential developments for their workers. Mm. They built fabulous working, uh, 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 you know, accommodation for their workers and sewage and water and fresh air and all those, you know, the Ivy Flats yeah. where actually, um, is it Sister Stan and co yeah, have their, you know, yeah. have their bases. That was a, an Ivy building. So uh, Lord Ivy, Ivy is the is the posh title for the aristocracy of, of Guinness when they oh, became titled a Lord Ivy or the Earl of Ivy was their title, uh, the Guinness 
places. Uh, they were very benevolent. They were very like Quakers. I don't know if they were, were actual Quakers, but they were very like Quakers and they were extraordinarily good for their workers. And I'm an, a huge fan of what Guinness did for the, the, the people and its employees mm. in Dublin yeah. and around the country, of course, because there was the bargemen, there was the, the, there was the, the, the trucks who brought the, the barrels up and down and, you know, and people who had anything to do with the, the Guinness network, I think, benefited. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a great fan of the idea that you can do well by doing good. Of course mm-hmm. you can, and yeah. when you're when you when you're in a, a privileged position like that, you can give back so much, you know. But I remember um, going to Dublin, you know, during the summers when I was a kid, and going to the Ivy Gardens and playing pitch, or tennis and bowls, and you know, I, I had a cousin Shane. He ended up playing bowls for Ireland. He was on a young yeah. slam. My uncle yeah. John played bowls. My, yeah. my cousin Richard played bowls. But yeah. he was been there. Yeah. It's a great mm-hmm. spot. But look, we we'll move around a little bit. Yeah. You ended up going into a life of medicine. Do you want to tell us how that came about? As Timmy said, like you've come from this background, how do you end up going to medicine? Like were you always drawn to it? Or was it, do you want to tell us a little about how, um, how that came about? My mother was, you know, 40 when I was born. So she was, um, as I say, an older, wiser woman. Yeah. She was also incredibly bookish. She always read six books a week. I grew up in libraries, you know, but my spiritual home is beside a stack of books. Okay. Uh, my happiest memories as a boy would have been bookshelves at home, bookshelves in the Dunleary Library, Blackrock Library, Stillorgan Library, the RDS Library. And when I was a student, if I wasn't in the pub or occasionally in the lecture hall, I'd be in a bookshop, a warm, dry bookshop, reading bits of books mm. in Fred Hanna's or uh, Gill's and Hodges Figures or whatever. Um, so I was a very bookish boy, very precocious. Um, my mother despite the sort of uh, the disapproval and the shame and all that kind of stuff, she kind of got over that. But she was a a very remarkably good woman. Like one of the things she did as a a woman was to to join an organization called InterAid, which was an, an organization for young unmarried mothers. And they actually bought houses. And they were basically, again, Quakers, a lot of good people, originally founded, I believe, by a German midwife from the Rotunda in Dublin, where my mother was born in 1919, uh, was was the original founder, I believe. But my mother uh, was part of that organization uh, and was a real social justice warrior. Mm. Her mother had come from the tenements. She was a very devout Catholic, despite all the stuff that the church had said or did to her or whatever it did to her. And despite of that, she was a real, she, she adored St. Joseph. He was the, 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 the founding father of the, of the Holy Family. Uh, you know, she regarded him as, as the, the, the neglected father figure in the Holy Family. So uh, until her dying day, she loved St. Joseph as the kind of protector yeah. figure. Um, and so she was very devoted to the social justice. Mm. And I think I absorbed all that, you know, uh, care for people in the in the inner city, care for people who were not lucky like me. I mean, I, mm. I, I, I said to you earlier, I end, I started life in an orphanage. I owe everything I have to a, to the, the luck of having a, a woman of a, a, a sort of a social justice warrior woman, a strong independent woman, who uh, had this also this vision for me. Uh, that she put me in this school, a place called St. Conlet's in Dublin, uh, near Bowles Bridge, which was one of the schools founded by John Charles McQuaid. It was a Catholic school without priests. It was a kind of an experimental school in those days, back yeah. in the 1940s or ni- late 1930s. Um, and I just flourished there. It was a, they, 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 it's nicknamed as a, the school for quirky kids. And I was a quirky kid. <laughs> 
I was also a stroppy kid because I discovered when I was about 11 that I was illegitimate. I discovered who my father was. I discovered that he had another family of six kids and a wife mm. and that, you know, all was not as it seemed. And I discovered all that accidentally when I found a letter in my mother's filing cabinet. Did it manifest in behavioural issues? Yes, and I became a... I became one of those kids who was always on the way from or on the way to trouble, as they say. You know, God, I, I became a tearaway. Uh, I went off to Amsterdam. I dropped acid. Uh, I hitchhiked around the place with, with friends. I, I, I was a party animal. I was very wild, really, mm. as far as you, you can be. Yeah. Without completely going off the rails. But I went pretty close to going off the rails. Um, and you know, like people that like we were saying around, people have a perception of doctors and consultants as like goody two shoes, posh yeah. boys, but people are getting understand. You know, no, it's not always no, like no. that. No, and not only that, guys. I mean, like I went to college in UCD in 1976. And there were lots of farmers, mm. daughters and sons. Yeah. A lot of people who were had just probably you know, scraped together to afford college. Yeah. Because it wasn't just about even even a college was free as it wasn't in those days. But like, you know, there was the college fees and there was the accommodation fees and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people, I, I mean, I worked through college and yeah. I worked as in and bars. And, how long and does it take it to become? Six to years is the basic. And what, what was it like? I can imagine it's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard. <laughs> and I was a dreadful student. But it's elite students. Well, I was... Is the, it a point system back in the day? Yeah. I mean, I was... I mean, I, I, I was... I had two or three pieces of good fortune. I was a kind of pretty boy. Uh, and I had my father's charm. My father was a PR man, basically. He was one of the founders of the Institute of Public Relations of Ireland. He was a very famously charming man. Mm. And I, I inherited some of that. I was also quite bright and I had my mother's value systems and that's what kept me going. Mm. So I was always in trouble. I was always getting leathered in school. I was always being put outside the door, but somehow I just kind of clung just with my, my fingernails to, to the right side. And I won the school gold medal, for example, for, 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 for the leading sir points. Brilliant. But within a year, I almost flunked college because I hated college. Mm. I was really lonely. All my, I had a bunch of really close friends at school. I was in school for 10 years, the same place. Yeah. So it was a kind of a, a, a surrogate family for me. Mm. I had a bunch of lads. I was incredibly, they're like brothers to me. We were like brothers in arms. And they all scattered to the four winds. They all went to different, to different, different things. Some of them repeated. Some of them went off to Trinity. Some of them went off whatever. Uh, and I was incredibly lonely in the in the in the concrete jungle that was Belfield. Mm. And uh, I really was really despondent. And 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 my points, my 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 performance collapsed. And I nearly gave up. But I I didn't give up because I wasn't going to bring shame upon my mother. Mm. You know that was the thing. You know I mean my mother as it was she was working hard. Because she lost her job in the early 70s with the oil crash mm. uh, when Guinness slashed and burned. And for the first time in its history, had to a lo- load of people go. So she was already struggling in the, in the early 70s. So I wasn't going to bring more. I mean, I was difficult enough as it was, the kind of carrying on. But I was always incredibly loyal to her. Mm. Like I remember coming home at th- two or three in the morning on the morning of the Pope's visit to Phoenix Park. I came home from a party, I think, at two or three in the morning. And I went off in a bus with her to the Phoenix Park at five in the morning. <laughs> You know, because that's mm. the way I played it. Yeah. I, I was, I, I worked hard, I played hard, or sometimes I played hard, and then I played hard. Um, so I always had that bit of duty. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, I don't mind saying that, you know, I'm, I, I was never a mammy's boy, yeah. but I'm profoundly filial. I, I'm one of those people who really, really respected my mother. And the older I got, the better I got to know her, the more I respected her. And you repaid her? 
and you graduated. But towards the end of the college, you were in different um, maternity hospitals in Dublin. Yeah. What was it like? What, what was it like for uh, a young doctor? Is, is that a, is that what we call a junior doctor? No, or is a junior? No, doctor? that's a medical student. A medical, the medical student. students go. I mean, you're a medical student for six years, and I suppose the two big maternity things that, that I did as a medical student, one was in Zambia, where I went right, to work yeah. in the missionary hospital in, in Monza with Sister Lucy O'Brien, another phenomenal woman, a formidable surgeon missionary uh, obstetrician who had originally worked in Biafra and Sierra Leone and then went down to the south of Zambia and, and built up this hospital in Monza, which was originally a small clinic. And she turned it into the main sort of obstetric center for the south of of, Mon- of Zambia, which is a big, huge country, you know. Mm. Uh, what was it like over in Africa and Zambia? Fascinating, fascinating, you know. Um, is it like basic, basic materials? Really basic. I mean, I remember arriving uh, uh, from, we, we, we flew from, to, to, from London to Moscow to uh, To Angola, to you know, we were in an air flight, a Russian flight, which was you know full of KGB Mm. type agents. We thought, uh, I'm certain they were actually. There was a there was a war going on in Angola. We could see the Cubans and the Russians and all the bomb and military stuff and bombed out airport in there and a rickety plane. And then you arrive suddenly in Lusaka, the capital of 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 Zambia, and it's all peace and quiet and quite a bit of poverty, obviously, mm. down an unmarked road, which is the main road. It's completely unmarked. It's like a, it's like a back road in Ireland. Mm. And two hours later, you're in this little tiny village, Hamlet, with a, what a single-story building that's probably the size of uh, a small national school, country school in, mm. in Ireland. And there's a big car park, or so I thought. And in fact, that's where the people gather on weekdays, you know, in their hundreds, waiting for for treatment. And basically there was an operating theatre and there were wards and it was in front of bare concrete, no windows, sunshine, all the theatre drapes and gloves would be draped over the hedgerows because, again, the sunshine Mm. sterilised them, you know. So, again, incredibly eco-friendly because they had so little and they made the most of what they they did. So I learned obstetric, uh, you know, know, skills and surgical skills in the labour suite there. I learned, you know, about uh, delivery and and childbirth and uh, the problems of of obstetrics. And, of course, a lot of women die tragically in childbirth in in impoverished countries because of of the want of obstetric care, which is why what Lucy O'Brien did uh, was so incredibly important to mm. so many people in, in Zambia and, and the example she set to so many students like me for generations going to stay with her for a summer. Um, and she's just one example of a whole lot of missionaries that was all over the third world in South America. And, and here's the thing, James, I can't be doing with this blanket condemnation of the church or nuns or priests because I have met very good priests and nuns. Now, no one is more cynical than I am of certain types. Yeah. But I don't believe that more than 10 or 15% of priests or nuns are evil or wicked. I think the rest of them are just ordinary human beings. Mm. And some of them are heroic, like Lucy O'Brien. Mm. Um, you know, so just, just by the by. You can't. And like, oh, that's important to say as you well. You can't. I, 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 I think it's ridiculous to dismiss mm. the entire church when we know from analysis that about 10... Even if you were being really over generous, you'd say ten or fifteen percent mm. were were these vile predators. But honestly, I think it was less than five percent, as far as I can remember. But I met a lot of very good nuns and priests in my time. And without the church and the religious orders, there was no care. You know, so they yeah. did step up to the yes. place. We'd have but- no hospitals or schools or universities if we hadn't had the Irish monks clinging on to Slayhead living off guano and seaweed and dead birds 
building leather boats, going up to Iona, round to Northumbria, Northumbria and Lindisfarne, and then creating the monasteries in the whole of Western Europe, from Portugal to Holland, which became the universities of Europe, which in turn created the hospitals of Europe, and mm. so on and so forth. So there's a very honourable mm. tradition in the Judeo-Christian uh, history books, yeah. which I think, you know, it is unfair to forget about. Of course it is. Now, myself and Timmy are in recovery from addiction, as you know, and the nature of our podcast is around drug use, recovery, and trying to educate people. We often spoke about here how heroin came to Dublin, how it came to Cork, but back in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, how it came in from uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, in through um, Liverpool, Edinburgh and Dublin. And you were in all three cities I, I at the was, time. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, what that was like at the time? You say, like, that's a bit suspicious, isn't it? I know, I, uh, we were <laughs> part of that. He's a smuggler. <laughs> yeah, in all honesty, guys, I was only happened to, happen to be there. Um, I worked in James's in Dublin in 1983. And uh, at that stage, I think the Dunn family had infamously Mm. Uh, brought in the, the heroin uh, into into Dublin, and as you say, here's a, here's another thing. Like you talk about geopolitics, but the Iranian Revolution, the Ayatollah's Revolution mm. of 1979, was arguably what triggered the heroin epidemic uh, in Europe that has basically endured ever since. Mm. Because what happened was that the Shah of Iran who was a dictator, an autocrat. He had a secret police, which was notoriously uh, ferocious and formidable and, and powerful. And they controlled all criminality between Afghanistan, which is Iran's neighbor, mm. and everywhere else. So as long as the Shah and his secret police were in charge, the, the opium trade going west into Europe was controlled. Mm. Uh, but come the collapse of the Ayatollah and the Iranian Revolution, uh, there was a there was a bonanza for those uh, smuggling uh, opium from Afghanistan into into Europe, and the Dunn family famously took advantage of that. And the Dunn family tragically were from the Liberties themselves. Mm. Uh, like my own, my own father, grandfather, right, was from the Liberties, which is that part of, of Dublin, which is just kind of uh, upriver from St. Patrick's Christchurch Cathedrals. Yeah. Uh, and that little bit, you know, along Clan Brazil Street in the Coombe. Uh, and basically uh, they had flooded uh, Dublin, inner city Dublin with, with heroin by... Uh, the the early eighties. What uh, was your knowledge around heroin use and addiction before then, or was this just like was this just like a flood that happened? Like COVID was like, all like before there wasn't no heroin. No, all of a sudden we're flooded and we're overwhelmed. Like, what was it like being? Well, a- I was. I mean, I I have was. I suppose as part, of, I was a very bookish child, and I loved American movies. Mm. So I was always reading about drugs, herbal drugs. Carlos Castaneda and the peyote and the and the, the psychedelic drugs of Central America. Mm. I was reading about Jack Kerouac and on on the road, you know, the beatniks uh, and the heroin and the psychedelics and you know Hunter Thompson, you know, on the road to Las Vegas um, and you know Gonzo journalism, which was about this kind of semi-realism. And I was and then in terms of the movies, like. French Connection, mm, you know, really, really, really powerful stuff about the heroin trade. Mm. Um, and I mean, I heard recently about how the Stones and the Beatles were all, were, you know, the, the heroin, they, they were, became addicted or certainly became big users of heroin. Yeah. John Lennon and Keith Richards because of the, the music trade when they were in the south of France. Because apparently at one stage they were broke and mm. like, they, you know, it, 
people from Marseille came to the chateau wherever they were they were hiding out back in the south of France mm. in back in the early 70s the time of the French connection so again it's connections 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 and anyway Dublin was this big port it was connected to Liverpool it was connected then to to Holyhead Liverpool uh, France whatever and so stuff was coming in through Dunleary I remember some I used to hang out in Dunleary I'm a Southside boy from Stillorgan Dunleary that's where I did my my growing up my yeah. my courting and I, there was a a mini epidemic of heroin use in the late 70s that people don't know much about. Young middle-class kids were dying uh, because some of the stuff was by, being diverted from the mail, sh- mail boat, you know, in Dunleary to, to Glenageary and to Dorky and to Kalini. And, you know, I, I, I know boys and girls who were addicted and who died or, you know, I, 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 there was one... F- friend of mine who ended up in the street and died of, in, as a heroin addict which is mm. he was a, you know I, I, I don't want to go there too far but he was yeah. a, a, he was a quintessential middle class kid mm. I, I played golf with him you know it was extraordinary that he would end yeah. up I didn't know that until, until, until recent years but anyway I ended up in St. Saint, in Saint James's and within like within a day or two I saw my first heroin addicts coming in overdosing you know blue gray face pinpoint pupils barely breathing not breathing uh, and then responding to this magical drug called naloxone or narcan which i'd, I'd almost never heard of because mm. my first job had been in, in wexford no heroin issue yeah my next job had been in vincent's no heroin issue no heroin issue there really uh, and uh, and and yet we were using it every day every other day in james which was in antidote opiates yes and um, basically uh you know you were learning on the job so we were learned in in those days in, in the early 80s that for example if you give the antidote into a vein to one of these overdosed uh, heroin addicts um they would suddenly wake up they might get very stroppy they might rip out the lines and say, mm. you wrecked me, buzz, man, yeah, you know, yeah, what are yeah. you doing, man, you know? <laughs> and they'd storm out from the resource room, spraying watery blood everywhere. And then they'd be found dead about half an hour later in the campus because we discovered very painfully that the antidote wore off within minutes. Mm. So basically, if you've taken an overdose of methadone or heroin, um, that can last in your system for hours and hours and hours, like two or three days. Mm. Whereas the Narcan may only last for 45, 50, 60 so minutes. It could bring somebody that went over, it could bring them back, but they could go back over again. Precisely. So what, what, what we, and again, you learn the whole time. So we learned to give it into the muscles in the thigh. Because it's slow release. Because it's a depot, it's a slow release there, which means it was in the system for much longer. Mm. So you tend, to, instead of giving one ampoule into the vein, you gave two or three ampoules into the into the thigh muscles. And that way you could head off the possibility of them running off. And the other good thing was that they didn't wake up so quickly and so angrily. Mm. Uh, and the other thing was you didn't need to give up, you get so many lines going in. Of course, at the same time as all that was kicking off, HIV was kicking off. I know, Jesus Christ, it was a mad yeah. time, wasn't it? It was a tricky time. And I had friends who were dying, you know, or friends of friends who were dying. I mean, I used to hang, I mean, I was a young man about town in Dublin. I was like 19, 20 and 79, 80. Yeah. And I used to drink in places. And with, like if you're going out, you're going out with girls, is it in the back of your head? Or are you thinking like, well, I, are I mean, people thinking it's it, only homosexuals own, at that time? With, in my own defence, uh, I'm very heterosexual. Yeah, you know, so, but I, I, I had a lot of gay friends from from. I mean, I was a real man about town. You know, I was a man. I worked in Captain America's and in, in Grafton Street, 
And when that burnt down, I worked in, in Solomon Grundy's in Suffolk Street or whatever. And I worked in other places around yeah. the city. So, I, you know, I, I knew a lot of people around the, around the town. And I knew a lot of the gay guys. I used to drink in the Bailey with them or whatever. And, you know, two or three of them, you know, uh, like Fab Vinny was one of the one of the guys I was friendly with, used to drink with. And Charles Self was another one. They, they both died. One, Fab Vinny was the famous... MTV disc jockey who came from Clonmel to New York via the Bailey and RTE Montrose. Mm. He was our first rock me- mega star, TV star, but he was also our first celebrity victim of, of AIDS. Mm. Uh, and Charles Self was the victim of a, an as yet unsolved cold case. He was um, stabbed m- many, many times oh, yeah. in his flat in, in Monkstown in, in County Dublin, in, again in a murder that was unsolved. And, and it was thought that he had picked somebody up and, you know, it went horribly wrong. Do you know when you were working in the hospitals around the H- H- HIV and AIDS, did the hospitals know that it wasn't just gay men? And did they know the extent of it? Or was it like the narc and thing you're learning as you go? No, you're learning the whole time. Like, I, I went from the Narcan lessons of St. James's and the Liberties to Edinburgh Royal Infirmary where we ran a flying squad, one of the first flying squads in, in the UK in, in the mid 80s. And, you know, I remember going out to uh, to the tenements there. And a, a flying squad outreach? Flying squad. No, flying squad is basically, it's an ambulance okay. with intensive care stuff in, on board. There's oh, no, but there's no bed. It's basically, you're in the front uh, cabin and you've got this amazing intensive care kind of facility at the back. Uh, so you, you got all sorts of things. You can, you can put people to sleep. You can do automatic pumper on the chest. You can, you know, use anesthetics and all sorts. Was that set up then because of the drug use? That no, it was set up uh, for, for accidents and cardiac arrests and general stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember being called one evening to the tenements. And the tenements in Edinburgh were very different from the tenements in Dublin. In Dublin, the tenements were all right in the centre. Whereas in Edinburgh, they were all right at the periphery. Uh, and so we remember flying out to one of the tenements out in uh, on, out by the river in in Edinburgh one cold winter's night, and uh, the you know we had to go with the police because they used to throw slabs of of stone concrete onto the onto the police. Uh, that was one of the recreations that they used to have there mm. in the tenements in those days because they didn't like the police, the police, mm. uh, and so we had to go in convoy. And I remember arriving in this, in this dark tenement uh, one night and rushing into the into the into the maisonette in the, in the tenement with the nurse. Uh, you know, we had our kit on, the high vis, rushed in the front door, and there was a uh, two young skinny women on the on the uh, the stairs to my right, uh, with cut glass containing whiskey or something like whiskey and smoking joints. And I remember going, I said, "What's going on here?" You know, because mm-hmm. it, it, it was all dark and broken glass and no lighting outside. And you go into this maisonette and it's warm and comfortable. And these two young women have sipping whiskey. And she said, you're too late, Sonny. She's in there. And I rushed past her down the 10 yards of the corridor into this big, uh, spacious living room, sitting room, where there was all this leather furniture and a big, huge color TV. And there on the floor, on the carpet, the the plush pile carpet was this skinny anorexic, young woman uh, lying there inert no movement no breathing and grey and I you know I sh- shook her shoulder you, you, you okay you with you there you there was you okay you okay and no no nothing and I, I realised she had a mouthful of pus she was dead and she was basically dead and in fact 
it was rigor mortis was beginning. She was dead for a while. And it was obvious that she'd been dead for, or was dying at, at the very least when the ambulance was called. And it was like the, the neighbours that you've seen, it was like and they so were, normal, wasn't it? But they were partying. And in fact, it was only after I had a chat with the nurse and we said, look, there's nothing to be done here. We just pronounced it life extinct. And we were going out back to the ambulance. And I then heard a baby screaming upstairs and crying. And I realised that, that that was her baby. And uh, I, I never forgot that night, that yes. cold winter's night, that that skinny anorexic heroin addict mother was lying dead on the, on the floor of this maisonette. Mm. The two young women were completely indifferent to her condition mm. and plight. And there was a baby upstairs and that we were going back to a busy, packed emergency department across the city. But the social workers and the police and the coroner would all have to come in and deal with that situation. And I thought, God help that that baby. Well, when you think about the mother dead on the floor, like what happened to her and her life that left her like that? What happened to the baby afterwards? That's mm, what yeah. I'm making. What, what yeah. happened to the baby? And, and, and that's my, one of my mantras. Uh, what, is, what did the baby go through already, even at that stage? What became of the baby? Well, no. well, well here's yeah. the thing. Let's go back to the late, let's go back to obstetrics. But first of all, one of my mantras, as I say, you know, if you're in an emergency department, it's packed and it's noisy and it's bed and there's all people kicking off and carrying on. And I say to the nurses, the medical students, whatever, hang on, hang on. Remember, difficulty makes people difficult. Mm. You know, remember where they're coming from. And they might be coming from that maisonette. They might be that baby. And here's the thing. Even after she was born, that baby, within the first few hours, she might die from a heroin overdose. Because if the mother is consuming methadone or heroin uh, at the time or in and around childbirth, you can have opioid addiction in the infants and they can have fatal convulsions, withdrawal convulsions Mm. and so on. So even before she's barely a few hours old, you can have Mm. neonatal addiction. And of course, if you go to the Rotunda or the Coombe or wherever in Dublin or Mm. wherever you go, uh, you may well have addicted babies. Yeah. So you, like, even as a, a young medic, like you were linking the psychological trauma to the addiction. Do you know what I mean? Like, Well, I was, I was beginning at that stage because I was, I was 28, 29 at that stage. Mm. And I had been promoted to be registrar, which is kind of lieutenant uh, in the department. So I was beginning to feel a bit more responsible. I'd worked all the hours. I mean, I'd worked 100 hour weeks well, for that. years at that stage. Uh, so I had, even though I was only, say, uh, four, four or five years qualified. I mean, I felt like I had about eight years experience or nine years. And he, in fact, I, I was so experienced that they promoted me quite quickly in Edinburgh. Because mm. actually, that's the upside of working all the hours in in the Irish system. You know, you, yeah. you're 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 much you're much more experienced than others when you go to Australia or America. But uh, I began to realize, look, all the drink coming into the department, all the all the heroin, all the overdoses, the Panadol overdoses, whatever paracetamol, paracetamol overdoses. Yeah. Um, you know. They're all coming from pain. Mm. You know, people people have buried pain. They're reacting to their pain. And the pain can be all sorts of things. It can be the, the brutal father, the neglectful mother, the poverty, mm. you know, the malnutrition. You, you name it, there's all sorts of sources of pain. Uh, and of course, the spiritual pain. You know, you can have a perfectly normal mother and father, and yet they don't really love you. You, yeah. you know, there are so many ways to experience pain. Yeah, You ended mm. up in Liverpool around the time of Hillsborough. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah, 1989. What was, what, what was Liverpool like at that time? Well, Liverpool was on its uppers. You know, basically Liverpool had been the sort of second city of the British Empire in the 19th century. And by 
you know, sort of 18, 19, 1900, it was this extraordinary big New York type city with enormous docks, I think 12 miles of docks. And when you approach it from the sea, if, for example, coming from Dublin into the estuary of the Mersey, you look like you're approaching Shanghai mm. or, you know, Brooklyn or, you know, Manhattan. It's an amazingly beautiful landscape, uh, you know, cityscape, riverscape. It's a beautiful building full of incredible, and it has more listed buildings than any other city in Britain other than London. Who knew? I didn't know until I went there. Uh, but it had been flattened by the Luftwaffe during the Second World War. And in the 50s and 60s, there was economic and industrial chaos. A lot of factories closed. A lot of the economic center of gravity moved to Manchester. A lot of middle class people moved to Manchester. Uh, and so there was a huge amount of unemployment. Mm. There was a massive heroin problem. You had the toxic rise of the early 80s, which had left a huge amount of seething resentment on the part of like the Afro-Caribbean people in Liverpool. Like, Liverpool had been uh, the, the, the one of the first cities in the whole of Europe to have a really, really multicultural population. Afro-Caribbean, Chinese, you know, people from every part, That's every imaginable part of, 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 of Europe. And one quarter of the population were Irish. Mm. And they say there are tens of thousands of Irish bones underneath the, the front buildings of the city. Such was the, the exodus from the famine mm. era in Ireland. The poverty. Dublin is closer to Liverpool than it is to Cork. In terms Dublin of- is close to Liverpool. And I used to say, people used to say to me, know what I mean, mate? All right. Mm. Yeah. I'll be probably with me back, mate. All right, Doc. It was an open. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, if you were in Dublin, they'd be saying, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I was always fascinated how the two accents were so close. Mm. Mm. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was like two adjacent parishes. Mm. Uh, and I always felt, and I always remember saying to one patient, his name was Murphy. And I said to him, oh, I see your name. Your name's Murphy, you know, yeah. I see, uh, oh, yeah, I believe it's Irish. Yeah, you know, a bit of Irish there, you know what I mean? Uh, and, like, <laughs> if you looked your at... Your accent is good. If you, looked at the, if you looked at the directory, literally a quarter of the names would be Irish. But even Everton and Liverpool football clubs, there's huge Irish traditions in both them clubs. And actually, it's not what you think. I think the Everton was the Catholic originally. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. and but it's obviously that's changed hugely. It's like Celtic. Well, not like it's not quite like Celtic and the Jurors. There, there's so many toffees and red supporters in Ireland that it's no longer relevant. But I tell you what, um, one of the first patients I ever met in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh was wearing an orange sash. Well, and right. I was shocked. That's a young the, the audacity of it. <laughs> a young South Dublin Catholic, right? That's the sentence in Dublin at the because time because. We, uh, you know, we looked up north in the 70s and thought, jeez, hope that doesn't come down here. Mm. But there was a similar situation in Edinburgh, in Liverpool. Mm. There was orange parades past the Royal Liverpool Was-ta. University Hospital in the 80s, in the 90s. And again, I couldn't believe it was going on. So there was huge sectarianism in Belfast, in Glasgow and in Liverpool. Of course, if you think about it, it's all the same stuff going on. Yeah. Because the Donegal people and Mayo people moved to Glasgow en masse. The Dubs and the people from the south and, and east of Ireland moved to Liverpool and Bristol and, and so on. So you could expect that kind of sectarianism. Mm. And, it, and it, it, it endured until the, until the 90s, certainly, you know. How did you end up coming to Cork? Uh, it was the first job on offer. <laughs> I was in exile, as I say, for 14 years before a job that suited came up. 
and uh, I knew I had a hope of a job here because one of the first jobs, like I think the only other jobs came up in, in Ireland where one was, I think one might have been in Mayo and I, I wasn't going to Mayo. Much as I love Mayo, mm. you know, I had a wife from Edinburgh, I had three daughters from Liverpool. Um, yeah. And uh, I knew Cork because I used to come up and down to Cork as a student to the jazz. I used to come up and down to for weekends to Baltimore and to Skull. And, uh, and, I, and I love Cork. So it was this a neutral. It was neutral yeah. for the, the girl from Edinburgh and the, the boy from, uh, from Dublin. And the only problem was that the only job was for three hospitals, which was a crazy proposition, you know, because I was coming from I was I was motoring in 1999 when i left liverpool i was motoring you know i was i had been given merit awards for achievements i was the director of education in 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 the, in liverpool which was the fourth biggest hospital in britain uh, i was doing all sorts of stuff you know i made really really good progress and i knew this would be a completely sort of backward step professionally i'd be starting from scratch mm. i'd always be you know probably number two and i knew I, that it was going to be difficult working in three hospitals but to be absolutely honest with you, working through hospitals is probably the fatal blow to my, my career. Because as I put it in the book, I ended up playing for three different football teams and committing to building three different clubhouses. Because mm. mm. all three departments in the Mercy, the South and CUH were all falling apart, were all bursting at the seams, were all completely in, inadequate. Uh, and I was trying to build them all up, both in terms of the box and what went on in the box in terms of the c culture, the policy, the training, the staff, the morale, you know, the the, the, the quality of the care, uh, all that kind of stuff. Was there a, that was sounds draining, doesn't it? Does, yeah. I, I was completely worn out. I was yeah. completely worn out because I was ke I kept getting, like I'd be in the mercy and there'd be a crisis call from the CUH saying, we've no staff, can you, what can you do about it? Or I'd be in CUH and, and South would say, we've no, we've no doctors arrived to work. Okay, well, can you fix it? Can you fix it? And that could um, day in day, and all the politics of the three separate hospitals, you know. So what was your role, like to coordinate the No, I was the consultant. Basically, I was the, the consultant at the Mercy and the consultant at the South, and the second consultant at CUH. What if you didn't turn up for work? What if I didn't turn up? <laughs> uh, well, they were used to having nobody in the South and the Mercy to some extent. Yeah, but I I committed mm. when I arrived. I said I want equity of access regardless of portal. In other words, I wanted the three hospitals to provide the same quality of service, regardless of where the ambulance ended up. So if the yeah. ambulance took you to the south of the Mercy or CUH, which is sometimes a random thing, yeah. Whatever's I want closest. to make sure you were guaranteed the same quality in all three places. Mm -hmm. And I promised the three chief executives that I would do my utmost for the patients in their facility. And I, 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 I like to think that I kept my promise, but it broke my heart and it mm. broke my back. It sounds like an impossible situation. It was an impossible thing. And in fact, they banned those types of jobs mm. in about five years, uh, 2006, I think. And uh, I had other colleagues who were doing two hospitals who protested and said it was beyond what more than they could do. Do you know when you came from, um, coming from Edinburgh and Liverpool, coming to Cork, was there a big drop in the standard of the health service? Uh, I don't know. You can speak freely, can't you? I can speak freely. Yeah. Yeah, oh, like, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, God knows I've spoken freely enough about yeah, the whole exactly. thing. I've agitated enough. You know, look. Or maybe the morale amongst the staff in the hospitals. Was well, look, like, like the, Royal the Royal Liverpool Hospital had hundreds of consultants when I left. 
CUH had, I think, a couple of dozen. Two, I can't even remember now, but two or three dozen. So even in that sense, in terms of scale, there was a huge difference. Mm. The South Infirmary, I think, had about, I think, 15 to 20 consultants and so on, and the Mercy much the same. So there was that scale difference. Yeah. The three departments were really completely in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in unsuitable. You know, the Mercy, as you know, was a tiny corner uh, room. There was like two or three rooms. And at times there was a room the size of this studio, guys. And there'd be as many as twelve patients waiting in chairs. Is this in the A&E? In the Mercy. I remember the remember the old yeah. A&E. This is the yeah. old Mercy, right? Yeah. The old Mercy. And I wrote letter after letter after letter. I went to consultants committees and I wrote to the chief executive protesting that there were sick elderly people waiting for hours and sometimes days mm. in the old plaster room right. in the Mercy. And anybody and even my own my own office was a tiny ex storeroom with no windows. And I ended up crouching and the computer was at an angle. So I was twisted. My back was twisted for the full eight or nine years that I was in that room uh, trying to get things done. Of course, you're not just a a doctor. Mm. You also have to be an advocate. You've got to negotiate. You've got to make your case for facilities for the new department. If you remember, the new department of the Mercy wasn't open for a full year. Mm. Some of the kit in the new department of the Mercy was out of warranty by the time we, we got got into the department. And I had to go to war on the front pages of the Echo mm. with Minister Harney, who accused the staff of holding the hospital and the health service to ransom because they refused to move to a department, which was about four or five times bigger and had about 20 rooms as opposed to two or three rooms. And I, 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 I just couldn't convince them that if you have a psychiatric patient in one closed door room and you have a cardiac arrest in, in the two bay resource room with the door closed and you have six or seven medical people in behind closed doors and then you had an observer and so on and so on. It was so much more complicated than in the two previous rooms where everybody was in the same, you know, black yeah. hole of Calcutta. The one advantage of a black hole of Calcutta is you're all in the same hole. Mm. Whereas in a proper emergency department, there are lots of different spaces. There's the psychiatric space, there's the children's space, there's the elderly space, and so on. Yeah. Do you know, if a doctor, everybody looks as a doctor, it's a great job. You know, you have to be very smart. But what's it like for a doctor when, when they get something wrong? You know, when somebody suffers, maybe there's a lot of pressure on you. Like. Yeah, how 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 is that for a doctor? Yeah, well, it's it's I I think I think it's difficult because my my own perception mm. is that the more you care about people, the more you really care passionately, the more you take it personally mm. when the service doesn't come up to scratch, when you fail, or your system, or your department, or your staff, or your service fails, or if you make the wrong decision, even, or you personally fail. Yeah. Uh, and multiply that by three. Yeah. So you have three times the worry, three times the, the angst, three times the politics, three times the fights to get the right kind of service facility, new building, new this, new that. Like we had barely opened the new department in COH when it was already out of out of out of date. Mm-hmm. It was already too small because there's a four percent. And I, I I even said this in 1999. I said there's a four percent inflation rate in A&E departments every year, as far as I can work it out. Because that was the rate, roughly, that's the rule of thumb. Every year, there'll be 4% more patients coming to this department. Yeah. Yeah? And we, we told that. I remember my colleague and I telling the architect, 
when we were first introduced to the, the new walking wounded area in the new department, I said, you can't even swing a cat in here. Mm. Do you not understand what we need as doctors and nurses in terms of what we do? We need to be able to, you know, swivel yeah. and quickly grab a, 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 a needle holder or a scalpel or a syringe or a drug or a drape or a towel. And we can't do that here because you can't even move around. It's so, it's so claustrophobic mm. and, and so on. But, you know, I remember being really frustrated that our requirements are simple, what I call ergonomic requirements. In other words, if you want to know how to design an operating theatre, I suggest you ask an anaesthetist, a theatre nurse and a surgeon, yeah. right? But no. Yeah. They know best. At least that's what they basically said to us. Mm. You know, when you're coming into an environment like that and you have the staff in the hospitals, how do you keep the spirits up? That, I think, is the fundamental challenge of leadership. Uh, the, the leader must inspire. You know, I, I've been privileged to work with really inspiring leaders, uh, consultant surgeons in Wexford, consultant cardiologists and neurologists in, in Vincent's. Uh, and particularly Keith Little in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh and Colin Robertson, that, and, you know, who are these two really inspiring consultants in emergency medicine. My, my great mentor in Liverpool, Lawrence Jaffe. Uh, and, you know, their job is to drive on, mm. to make sure you're going the right direction at the right speed. You know, uh, you don't get trapped by, by rocks and shallows you don't get grounded, you don't crash into a boy or another ship, uh, that you are not radiating anxiety, for example. Like yeah. Poor leadership is where your personal anxiety uh, is contagious. That's bad leadership. Whereas good leadership is where you keep people going, keep, you know, you, you know it's not the old, come on lads, I'm right behind you. No, you're leading by example. Mm. You know, you're, you're inspirational because you're really upbeat you're energetic, you are making sacrifices. I think if staff and colleagues and trainees around you see you making sacrifices, they believe in you. Mm. Whereas if you're one of these politicians who is clearly not making sacrifices mm. and who's clearly not invested and who's clearly not taking any notice of the theatre nurse or the surgeon or the anaesthetist or anybody down there yeah. and who is almost never seen and that was one of my big beefs as a, as a doctor in the health service is that, you know, where, you know, the department has been chock-a-block day in, day out for months, for years. Mm. Where are the leaders who have the power to do something about this? Why are they not down here with me? And why is the failure of the department, the misery of the elderly, the screaming child in the inappropriate room who's terrified by the drunk kicking off over there in the waiting room. Mm. Why does that all, why am I associated with that failure? And why is the boss man or woman in the hospital not down here on a daily basis saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And I always quoted, and one of the reasons I got into such trouble back there at the beginning of the book, yeah. when I sort of lost the head on the national airwaves with Pat Kenny, when he asked me, so Chris, you know, What's going on with all this overcrowding in a and &E? I mean, we, know, we all know there aren't enough beds, but beyond that, and I said, we need leaders who are down here in the a &E department fixing it, 
seeing the problem firsthand and fixing it the way they do in England. There's actually, they brought in legislation in the early noughties, Blair and uh, Frank Dobson, the Minister, the Secretary of State for Health, they brought in a rule that if a patient wasn't out of an A&E department in Britain in the NHS within four hours, the chief executive or the medical director got sacked or something similarly yeah. serious. There was accountability. And that fixed it. Because as they say, it's nothing like a few executions to concentrate the mind. Mm. You know, because they used to, ex Napoleon used to execute his admirals to concentrate the minds of the, of the sailors behind them. And, you know, there was for me, there was always the sense, these guys don't seem to have real personal investment in the chaos at the front line. Because, and you know, and that may sound an incredibly inconvenient thing for them to hear. Mm. But if I'm not seeing the boss man or boss woman on a regular basis, in the midst of all the chaos that everybody knows about, and by the way, one quarter of the entire population of this country goes to an A&E department, to an emergency department every year. That's a lot of citizens mm. seeing dysfunction, for, for, you know, firsthand. So I say to people regularly, and I said it in the book, when a, a, a prospective TD comes to your front door, come the next general election, I suggest you ask them one simple question. So, uh, Mr. or Mrs. whatever, when were you last in the A&E Department of the Mercy? When were you last in the A&E Department of Seawage? When were you last in the Department of uh, in, in Connolly? Can you tell me that? Because I, you know, we're not very happy in the in the in the in the in the neighbourhood about what's going on down there. People are waiting. My grandmother waited there, you know, fourteen hours the other day for just for an ankle injury. So can you tell me when you when you were last there? Because otherwise, I keep hearing from TDs how they were shocked at the revelation that the A&E department was overcrowded. I know, but you know, as the years go by, yeah. and unless you come in down out, yeah. you know, as the years go by, right, and you have different governments, well, different variations of the same people, uh, different ministers, and it's famously labelled Angola, Pies and Chalice, the Department of Health, the problems persist and persist. For like forever, we're talking about A&E's being overcrowded, mm. people being on trolleys, and in, the la in 2021, there was all sorts of records being broken, mm. and we know there was a pandemic. Do you think it can be solved? If there was proper leadership. Well, James, all I can say to you is this. When Blair and Dobson brought in that, that, that rule about the four hours, the four-hour target, it was called, and sadly, that was brought in a year or two after I left. Mm. They increased the salaries of the staff at the front. They, 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 promoted, they, they created and appointed more of them. They threw resources at the A&E departments and they created a four-hour rule with p penalties for the management of it didn't happen. And it fixed the problem in the NHS for about 10 to 15 years. Mm. Mm. And it was like hearing about a blissful transformation after I had left. So I know it can be it fixed. It can be done, yeah. Mm. It's, all I was going to say really was um, around the waiting time inside mm. in hospitals. It's everybody knows that you're going to be waiting. Mm. Inside in the in, in the regional, the regional is an all goes on. Stay away from the regional because you'd be there forever. You the know, the CUH as they call it. No? Yeah, but um, the mercy was the same. You know, I've often gone to the mercy myself, and I've stayed there for two, three hours, and I just walked out. Sometimes people get injured. 
and they won't even go to the hospital because they know they're going to be sitting inside an AE room for three, four, five hours and they won't even be seen. Yeah. You know, so... And going back to what you said as well, if you were over there, like, yeah. and then it's coming 10, 11 o'clock, I know you people coming in full of full of alcohol, causing yeah. murder, and, like, in, in my own job in drug and alcohol services, you know, like, we can talk about drugs all day. Drugs are very harmful to society, but alcohol is huge. Yeah, alcohol, I call alcohol the broth into which everything else is put. Mm. So if you're making a soup or a stew, alcohol is the broth. In other words, it's the basis of everything else. So it is our main drug of choice. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's just no disputing that. You get the same people going into the emergencies yeah. every mm. night, sometimes every night of the week. Yeah, and, 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 and so in response to your, your uh, lamentation, Tim, mm. you know, which <laughs> is <laughs> my lamentation too, you know, there was an old joke that A&E stood for anything and everything. But actually, it's the truth. Because there's only one door into the health system now, it seems, for people with non-scheduled stuff. In other words, okay, so you're on the waiting list for a hip or a knee or whatever. That's called scheduled care, planned care. And you'll get there eventually, hopefully. But if you've got anything else in between, you know, anything that suddenly happens or crops up or you're waiting for a scan or you're waiting for your that lead, that lesion on your skin that's getting itchier and bigger and scratchier or you have this pain in your head or what or whatever or if you're homeless or if you have a drink problem yeah mm. or if you're just passing by and you wanted about getting that tattoo removed they all pitch up in the same place so we need to create more semi-planned semi-scheduled care so we need more access to scans for doc yeah. for gps we need more care for the homeless we need to do what I used to call appointments for trauma. So, for example, if you have a, an injury in, in Barley Cove or Yall Strand on this Sunday coming, I'd like to think that you shouldn't have to rush up to the Mercy or CUH or to Waterford, but that you can actually make a, an appointment by phone call to see the nurse, the urgent care nurse or the advanced nurse practitioner or the consultant in the local emergency department or urgent care centre for a day or two later. Mm. Because the vast majority of injuries and issues can be sorted out with an appointment, with an hour or two tops in and out with everything done uh, uh, and by, by, by scheduling you to avoid all the chaos. Yeah. And uh, we began that in the Mercy about 10 years ago and more and more of that kind of care is evolving. So you've got the urgent care centre now in St. Mary's in Grona Broad. I live near that yeah. and to yeah. me, brilliant place. Which is, which You're precisely, in, in and out of there, plastered And by the way, I should say that many of the staff there were my former colleagues in the South, yeah. which was a wonderful emergency department run by Nula Collin and her crew up there. And they do a wonderful job. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It can be a nine to five or eight to eight service mm -hmm. and you should be able to book in by phone or by email. And the same is going on now at the Mercy. And, and that's what I want to see as the future. Yeah. Whereas people have an injury an accident and they can make an appointment because you know unless you're unconscious screaming in pain or you can actually hear the bleeding mm -hmm. most things can wait until the following morning yeah mm. yeah and so so in other words there are lots of solutions but it comes back to the architect the theater nurse the surgeon and mm. the anesthetist if you want to know what the solutions are come and talk to us lads mm. because we have the solutions it's the same in the construction world when you have architects de designing buildings, 
you'll have an architect and a, a, um, an architectural tech, technologist and maybe an engineer, but there's no sign of a, a construction guy, an actual builder inside in the yeah, room and designing I'm not getting it. at Dermot now here, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. Dermot, I'm not getting at you. I'm just simply saying, this is just a metaphor. It's, but just talk yeah. to the people at the front line. Yeah, It's the same thing, really, like... When an architect builds a building, he's designed for aesthetics. And I've come across it numerous occasions where, yes, they're beautiful buildings, but buildability, they do not last. You know, you're replacing windows after five, six years because they're rotting. You know, all these different things. We need to involve the people that are on the front line. Like yourself, and the other and thing, your uh, Tim. You're, I mean, you're in that you're in the industry, but like yeah. I, I always remember going on a grand tour of Europe in 1992. In the last month before I became a consultant for the first time in 1992 in, in Liverpool, I went on a tour of Belgium and France and Holland and Germany to check out their A&E departments, to mm. see their system. All of them are completely different from what we have. And in some ways, they're, they're crazy, you know, and in other ways, they're, they're amazing. You know, like they look like kind of studios or, you know, old a- Apple computers and art and all, and they're basically empty because they just work in a different way. But I always remember the place, the University Hospital in Leuven or Louvain, uh, again, one of the great universities founded by the Irish, as far as I know. But they, their hospital looked like a Lego set. And it was built in a way that it could be extended every year or two. Mm. So they built it with a 4% inflation in mind. It looked like a Lego kit, but that meant that it was easy to extend. Uh, and it was bright and airy and full of windows and light. And it felt really modern and it was a lovely place to, to, to visit. Uh, and I thought, like, you know, why can't we... <laughs> Why do we build any departments in Ireland mm. as if, oh, well, you had one built in 2002. Isn't that good enough for you? And I said, yeah. no, it's 20 years on, you know, yeah. you know, you need to understand that A&E and healthcare is organic, mm-hmm. you know, needs evolve. And, and, and that, and, that and, 4% is cumulative. So that's all, that was great in 2002. But, you know, guys, we've moved on and our numbers have increased by 20, 30 percent. Yeah. 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 We're nearly finished. But I just want to ask uh, one of the questions about COVID because you're retired. Semi, oh no, I, well, I'm, I'm busy, but I'm, I'm, I'm in a different way. What, what do you make of the COVID situation from the perspective of the healthcare workers in the hospitals? Like, do you, is there a part of you I miss it and would love to be in the thick of it? Or is there a part you're thinking, fucking hell, I'm glad. Are you dodged <laughs> the, the, the pandemic, you know? Well, I went back in last year into the Mercy in the, for, for the first wave. And so I was very much there when the first wave kicked off. Yeah. And I remember the fear. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I've always said uh, that there uh, there would be three waves to COVID. First would be the fear of the disease. Mm. Second would be the disease. And the third wave would be the wave of anger. Mm. And I think it's turned out that way. So that's what we're in now, isn't it? And I, in a nutshell, I believe that we're looking at the end of the first big, big stage of the first, because I think it was a bit like the First World War. The First World War, the people in London and Dublin and Paris were convinced that the war would be over by that first Christmas. It wasn't. It went on for four years. And I think COVID will go on for two or three or four years because in my head, it's a mixture of the Spanish flu and SARS-1, which was the first COVID in a sense back in 2003. And what will happen, I believe, is that it will fade 
And one day we'll all ask ourselves, geez, you know, I haven't heard of anybody with a positive antigen <laughs> for the last couple of months. Is there any truth in the theory that as it mutates, it gets weaker? Well, that's the, the great theory in virology, the study of viruses, is that like every pathogen, it doesn't want really, it doesn't really want to kill the carrier or the vector. Uh, it's like malaria. Doesn't the, the the mosquito doesn't really want to kill the the human that it's it, it's in, it's injecting the, the the malaria into mm. because it, it it wants to keep doesn't going. It's part then. of its life cycle, and similarly, the virus they say will gradually attenuate or become weaker so that it doesn't quite kill you. You know, uh, it, as I say, you know, Nietzsche famously said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, the, with the virus is what doesn't kill you will become genetically mutated and then <laughs> kill you or make you sick at least. I think it's happening. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, uh, well, again, touch wood, early doors. Um, I think Omicron is showing that, it, that it's it's incredibly transmissible, which mm-hmm. is great for the virus, but not quite so ba- sickening, which is great for the vector or better for the vector, us. Um, and I think that's beginning to happen. So I'm kind of optimistic quietly. I put my hands up. If they, if I can be of any assistance, I volunteered last year. I went in. I volunteer anytime now. If I think that it's required, happily go back in. I'm, I'm still fully registered. I'm still working. I'm only in my early 60s. Uh, you know, I have my own uh, health issues, but like I'm, I'm going to drop of a hat if I was called in. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, what's retirement like? You, I know you have a lot, great book out. I'm going to give this away to one of our followers as well after I finish it up. So I might get you to sign that maybe. Yeah, certainly be yeah. And um, yeah. But what's retirement like? Have you any plans? Like yeah, still, no, I'm, well, I, I'm, I'm slowly building up uh, a second career. I mean, I'm doing a bit of committee work. I'm doing Mercy Foundation work, which is a, 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 a charity very close to my heart. Because as you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm profoundly committed to healthcare and I'm particularly fond uh, of, of the Mercy yeah. um, and the people that it serves, I mean, it goes without saying. Yeah. Um, and I'm doing a bit of writing. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping to drift a bit into sort of uh, medical journalism because I come from kind of journalistic background family father mother uncle mm. grandfather were all kind of uh, hacks and i'm I've, I've got that i think in 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 the in the, in the dna um and we'll see you know i i i'm i'm open to all offers basically yeah, yeah. Not about yeah. It. great yeah. way to end the podcast you've been a great guest thank you thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on and mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to say um no down through the years like i've been to the mercy mainly the mercy for have my appendix removed you know i was in intensive care and they bossed sports injuries overdoses mm. i remember overdosing and waking up in the mercy not remembering how i got there and giving the nurses the height of abuse from like mm. you know tearing drips yeah. over my arms full of benzos you know and then yeah. feeling so shameful afterwards so and always respect always care you know benzo fits ending up in the mercy you know it was yeah. always the mercy because the closest one so thanks to everybody in the thank mercy, you, yeah. including yourself thanks, yeah. James. And, thanks yeah. thank you, you know, yeah. like um you keep people like us alive, you know, and maybe we might be so grateful at the time, but when the time comes and we can, you know, get into recovery, uh, then you'll remember yeah. and then you can, you know, give thanks. So thanks. Thank you. Well, I like to think that we're sinners serving other sinners. Exactly. True. True. Yeah. See you all next week, lads. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.